Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It is a joy to be with you this morning, especially after the, what did what they call it, snowvid, snowpocalypse. It was a big deal uh, this week. Um, I'd like to jump right in our time because we have a lot of ground to cover. I really just have one or two things for you this morning. Uh, so if you got a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to Colossians chapter 1. And uh, while you do that, I'll, I'll rant a little bit. If you have not read Colossians, it is this small letter in the New Testament. It is sandwiched between Philippians and 1 Thessalonians, also small letters. So anyway, while you're looking for that in opening or loading your Bible, here are the few things that I have for you. Uh, the first one is every time we do a, a new sermon series, particularly through a book uh, we try to hook y'all up with some cool stuff, uh, one of them being scripture journals. Uh, these scripture journals are published by Crossway. They're very, very cool uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, this is a moleskin. And if you're not a journal nerd, let me tell you, that's a big deal, okay? Because the paper is some high quality paper, right? It's not the kind of paper that you submit your essays to in high school. It's the kind of paper where you dump all your feelings on. And when your tears come on that paper, it doesn't ruin it. And so... Uh, Anyway, really good paper. Uh, it's a moleskin journal. This is on Colossians and Philemon, two books that we're actually going to be going through this year. Anyway, uh, there's a limited amount, so it's kind of one of those first come, first serve. Uh, they are at the Connect desks. They are free. They are for you, so take one, especially as we walk through this wonderful book uh, in Scripture. And uh, in addition to that, if you're new, if you got questions, if you'd like prayer, when you go pick one up, also pick up a uh, Connect card because we'd love to hear from you and we want to hang out with you. And so fill one up, drop it in the Connect area, uh, and uh, somebody will get with you within 24 hours. That's, that's some high-quality hospitality. So with that being said, those are the two things I, I had for you, the scripture journals. Now people are going to start getting up. I already see y'all. People are still going to get up to get one, right? Like, oh, it's for me and the Lord. And so, uh, so you got the scripture journal, connect desk, all of those wonderful things. Once again, if you just walked in, we're going to find ourselves. See, look at these guys. Let's make fun of them. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> once again, we're going to find ourselves in Colossians. We are looking at verses one through eight this morning. And uh, as I mentioned, we're starting a new series today, uh, and it's on the book of Colossians. I'm really excited about this series. We'll be here for several weeks, I think 12 to 13 weeks-ish, if the Spirit leads us to more. Cool, if not, then less. Uh, but nevertheless, we're starting this new series on the book of Colossians. And so I want to give you a, a brief overview, maybe even a 50,000 view of, uh, of these Christians in this city known as Colossae. Who's writing to them? and why they are writing to them. And so in this short book, we see that it is the Apostle Paul who is writing to this small and young church in what is known as, as I mentioned, the city of, of Colossae, which is located in, in modern-day Turkey. And the truth is, we actually don't know a lot about Colossae other than what Paul reveals to us and a little bit about the history of it because, one, the city lays in ruins. Two, it has not been excavated. And so there's very little 
that we know about the city of Colossae, but we do know that at one point, this city was a thriving city economically. Uh, They had this product called Colossian wool, and they would produce it and then distribute it to all these different cities surrounding them. But by the time the Apostle Paul is writing to the city of Colossae, or to the church in Colossae, it is a city that is pretty much desolate, It is unimportant in the sense that it has been forgotten. There uh, isn't a lot of uh, development anymore. So when I say that it's an unimportant city, I don't mean anything uh, against the people who resided in Colossae. I mean in terms of its economic development, all of a sudden it regressed. It wasn't thriving anymore. It was desolate and it was small. All thanks to what we would kind of consider kind of like a modern day freeway. And so let me give you kind of an illustration as to how this city was quickly forgotten. When I was growing up, uh, my, my dad is from Houston. And so my brothers and I spent like a quarter of our, our uh, youth growing or going to Houston. And, um, and we would go in the summers and if you remember, if you've traveled anywhere north of the checkpoint at any point recently, right, like you are on the freeway and you, you zoom by Falfurias, right? Well, when we were growing up, it wasn't like that. You didn't zoom by Falfurias. You actually had to go into Falfurias and get back on the highway and eventually get to Premont. And there were these particular spots that my dad would always stop at. There was this Whataburger, not the one that we know of that's on the side of the freeway, but there was this one Whataburger that we would always stop at because my dad was in the army and he liked leaving like at four in the morning. And so we'd get to Whataburger like at five, 5.30, and he had this, this, this brown Whataburger cup and it was a nickel and you would refill your coffee. Some of you are nodding. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and my brothers and I were like, hurry it up. But... Um, Every time we would, we would go to Whataburger for that, and then there were these specific breakfast spots that my dad would hit up so that we would have fuel for the trip uh, going to Houston because it was, it was six of us in a Dodge Caravan, and it smelled. Anyway, and because uh, we're four boys, blah, blah, blah. Um, later on, right, that part of the city was, was developed by that freeway that we all travel through now right? And so when you're on that freeway, what is that? I guess it would be 281. When you're traveling through it, you zoom by Falfurias. If you've ever noticed, if you didn't grow up going through Falfurias, if you notice uh, on the side of the freeway, there appears to be what looks like an old Walmart. Maybe you've seen it, and it's abandoned, and it's pretty much in ruin. That was the place to be, man, because there was a McDonald's in there that hooked you up a really good breakfast sometimes. And so, and, and if you forgot something at home, this is where you kind of refuel before you hit the road and you don't stop anymore. Anyway, when you travel through the freeway, you see the, the, the Walmart that's abandoned and nobody's really hanging out there anymore and it hasn't been open for several years. And as you're traveling over Falfuri, as you see some of the restaurants that maybe at one point were booming and now they're closed and several places are, are boarded up. There is that, what I think it was a library at one point, maybe in the elementary that is all boarded up as, you're, as you get dumped in the other side of Falfuri, right before you hit Premont, right? Like there are all these things that used to be a part of the life of the city and now they're abandoned, they're closed, they're boarded up. And that was kind of like Colossae. Colossae wasn't necessarily, it became a city that wasn't necessarily special, but on the way to everywhere special. 
right? It was sandwiched between two other cities, Laodicea, if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, and, and why that matters is because that city was one of the, the cities or one of the churches that uh, Jesus speaks to through John in Revelation. And then there was another city called Hierapolis, or Hierapolis, however you want to pronounce that. And it was kind of like your McAllen. It was growing economically. A lot of people were moving there because of the cost of living. And again, it was booming developmentally and economically. And some things were happening in both of these cities. And so that kind of just left Colossae to eventually just be forgotten. And nobody really wanted to stop and hang out in Colossae. And if you travel just a little bit more, maybe about a, a, an hour past some of these cities, you'd eventually get to a city like uh, uh, Ephesus. Now, in, in, in your Bibles, there is a letter to the Ephesians. That is the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is like uh, the motherland, Austin. It is like Dallas, right? Like those are those big, booming cities with a lot of influence, a lot of urban development. <clears throat> and so here we have Colossae, and it is a unique letter, a letter, the letter to the Colossians. It is a unique letter because it is one of the most least, or one of the least influential cities and churches to receive a letter, particularly from the Apostle Paul. From what we know, more than likely, the Apostle Paul never met the Colossians and never actually traveled to Colossae. And that's, I think, our first and immediate encouragement I think it's an immediate encouragement because where you are matters because God has placed you there. Where you are matters because God has placed you there, not randomly, but specifically and providentially. You know, we talk about Fal and we talk about, you know, like the Austins and the Dallases. And oftentimes, particularly if you are a Valley native, if you are from here, you always want to leave. I don't care what you say, at some point, you always want to leave. And everybody's like, there are bigger things in Austin. There are bigger things in San Antonio. You didn't move, you just moved into town, right? You ever notice that when people say, oh, I'm going to move to San Antonio, everybody in the valley is like, that's not really moving out. That's like just going, you're moving from being out of town to in town. Everybody always wants to leave. But then there's this weird vortex about the valley. It pulls you back in. It brings you back. And you come back kicking and screaming because of all the wonderful things that were happening in all these other city, cities, even though you were broke, right? And it's just pulling you in and bringing you back. And you're kicking and screaming. And you're just wondering, why am I having to come back and move in with my parents again for the 15th time? And why can't I just stay wherever it is I go? And at some point, for many, uh, they end up, growing fond of the valley and the culture and the people and some of the unique things that we find down here that ultimately make us valley natives. And that's the encouragement piece about just the history of, of a church like uh, from, 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 from Colossae. It was this place that maybe they wanted to move out. Maybe they're just like, man, we used to be this thriving city. And they matter. Because God has claimed them as His. And they matter because of where they are. And so let me just encourage you before we get into some of the, the, the bulk of, of these passages, where you are matters because God has placed you there. 
He has placed you there. And so in this letter, as Paul writes to them, he writes to them for several reasons. I want to cover three of them briefly. Uh, These aren't the only reasons he's writing to them, but these three reasons kind of overlap one another. And I think these three reasons, or I think these reasons as a whole, tend to be, um, I'm going to use this word a lot, find a different word for encouragement, whatever that is. Anyway, uh, what, what tends to be kind of encouraging about this is that it's a young church that he's writing to. And so in a little bit, we're going to learn about this, this faithful minister, this faithful preacher named Epaphras, and, and he planted this church. And this church is, scholars believe, anywhere between five to seven years old. And that's a great encouragement to me because if, particularly if you have just known Storehouse McAllen, like in June, we turn four. And that's a big deal. And so it's like, oh man, he's like, a lot of these Christians are kind of where we're at right now as a church, as a congregation. And so this is really cool. And so Paul writes them for a couple of reasons. The first one is that he wants to encourage them about the supremacy of Christ. And this is where we get our sermon series title from. He wants to encourage them on the supremacy of Christ, that that Christ is above all things, that Christ is Savior, that He is Redeemer, that He is Lord, and that He is God. He wants to remind them, encourage them, fuel them, push them towards remembering the supremacy of Christ in all things. And with that same encouragement comes the second encouragement. He wants to encourage them on the sufficiency of Christ, that their deepest longing is and should be the sufficiency of Christ alone, not Christ and something else or someone else. And this is all too familiar of a trap for us where we would say that Christ is important, Christ is magnificent, Christ is wonderful, but do we say that Christ is sufficient? And oftentimes when we think about the sufficiency of Christ, we would say that, yes, we do hold fast to the sufficiency of Christ because there aren't these uh, extreme vices that I might participate in. But the truth is that when we consider the sufficiency of Christ, it is not just toward vice and we're so virtuous. It is even good things that challenge us. It is our careers. It is our families. It is our children. It is some of the endeavors that we want to pursue and that we want to hold fast to and that we want to at some point equate or elevate above Christ. And what Paul wants them to know is that Christ is sufficient. He is enough. Christ alone that is. And that bleeds into some warnings that he has for them. Because it's these two things, the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ, that are being threatened in the Colossian church. And so Paul writes to them to to warn against a false teaching or something he calls a dangerous philosophy that was being spread in the church. You can look at that in chapter 2 of Colossians. And because of the limited history that we know and have of the Colossian church, we exactly don't know what was being taught. We don't know what was being pressed at this time. Many scholars call it the Colossian heresy. In other words, it's this general teaching that was false and contrary to the teachings and sufficiency of Christ, but we don't know exactly what it was. Paul gives us some clues as to some of the the influence that was beginning to seep into the church. 
Paul tells us that they were practicing asceticism. And, and what that means is that they were becoming or that some people were influencing the Colossian church to adopt a severe uh, uh, self-discipline of, of withholding from things, almost like moral superiority. If you want to be better, then you need to be self-disciplined and don't drink this and don't eat that and don't say this and don't do it this way. But make sure you're doing these rituals. Make sure you're doing these practices. Make sure you add this to your daily life. If you really think Jesus is enough, make sure you're doing A, B, and C in addition to this. And so that was threatening the church. Another thing that may have been threatening the church because it was so common is this time, in this time is something known as syncretism. And all that means is that some people would, um, uh, what is it, like a, put, put several beliefs into a melting pot and call it one. Take a little bit of Judaism, a little bit of Hinduism. Like they would pull all of these beliefs, Gnosticism, pull them all into a melting pot and say, hey, this is, this is one religion. This is one belief. And so they're trying to influence the, the Colossian Christians into adopting some of these rituals, some of this religion or beliefs. Whatever the Colossian heresy was, here's what we know. It was contrary to the teaching that Christ is sufficient. In this letter, one of the more common phrases that you will see and that you will read is in Christ. And that's because the saints are in Christ. That is, Christ is enough. He is enough for our salvation. He is enough for our sanctification. He is enough for our relationships. He is enough for our ethics. At the heart of this letter to the Colossians is this doctrine called Christology. And Christology has everything to do with the supremacy and sufficiency of the person and work of Christ for sinners. And that's what Paul wants them to embrace. That's what Paul wants them to not forget. That's what Paul wants them to preach. And that is what God does. Uh, that is what God says through this letter to you and I that we must hold fast to the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. Because although the time and maybe even culture was different in the days of the Colossians, you and I are not uh, immune to some of these random beliefs pulling us away from the sufficiency of Christ. And so the Colossians at this point didn't need more than the gospel. They needed more of the gospel. And that is my, my hope as we walk through this letter. I don't want you to walk through this letter and think, oh man, there's something else that I need in addition to the gospel. Rather, I need the gospel more. And so today, as we look at Paul's opening verses, in a nutshell, here is what Paul starts with, and that is thanksgiving. Paul starts with thanksgiving. He begins by thanking God for His work and His Word in the Colossians. And while we'll unpack this in, in a moment, here's the main idea. And the main idea is that gospel-centered thanksgiving, gospel-centered thanksgiving praises God for His work around you, not just His work for you. Say that one more time. Gospel-centered thanksgiving praises God for His work around you, not just His work 
for you. And so what I'll do right now is read these first eight uh, uh, verses, and then I'll pray, and then we'll dig in. Beginning in verse 1, again, we're in Colossians. Here's what God says through Paul. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid for you in heaven. Of this you have heard in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. As it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let me pray. Father, we begin by thanking you for this morning. A morning that is filled with new mercies according to your grace. May we not waste that today. Father, we are thankful for you because of the work of Christ for us, in us, and through us. So would you make us more like Jesus today through your Spirit? This week was incredibly challenging for many of us. If not everyone, to one degree or another. So Father, thank you for sustaining us. May our time of singing and confession and hearing Scripture be the sweet sound of worship to you this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's how we're going to walk through it. We're going to look at the first two verses, one at a time. Verse 1 and then verse 2. And then when we get into verses 3 through 8, we'll break it up into bigger chunks, right? Giving you a little bit of heads up. So in the opening of this letter, right, what we see are a couple of people being introduced, right? One of them is Paul, another one is Timothy, and they are addressing the church in Colossae. And so what I want you to hopefully receive from this is simply an encouragement of what Paul says to the Colossians here. But beginning with Paul, he identifies himself as an apostle by the will of God. That is, that he is writing to them with spiritual authority, that he has been called by God specifically for this task of as an apostle, and he is writing to them with this authority. He is writing to them because he has been set apart from God with this kind of authority, and so he is writing to them. He talks about Timothy, Last, uh, last year, we walked through 2 Timothy. Timothy is his younger friend, his, his little brother. It's another pastor in arms, and uh, he serves alongside Paul regularly. Paul has a really close friendship with him. Timothy is known as his co-laborer, and one of the things that is so encouraging about Paul mentioning Timothy is that in almost, if not all of Paul's letters, he's always talking about the people he's with and around. Paul never does ministry by himself. And that's very encouraging. 
Right? That's, that's very encouraging because he, if anyone could have been alone, it was Paul. He had a PhD in religion. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He knew all of the things. He was well-educated, and yet all of his letters, whether it's in his greetings or in his conclusion, he is constantly talking about who is there with them and how they are praying for the churches that he is writing to or some of the things that they just finished doing or that they send their love to some of these churches. Paul is not a lone ranger. Many of us think we are, but here we are, the chief of sinners, the Apostle Paul saying, I'm always doing ministry with others because, man, one, I need it. I need to be encouraged. And two, man, I want to encourage others with the prayers of those who are around me. And Paul is addressing the saints, right? In this opening uh, statement, Paul says, an apostle, I'm here with Timothy. And he says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae, there's that phrase, in Christ. Pastor Tony Morita says it this way in that opening. He says, when he writes saints, saints implies their status. Faithful implies their stance. Saints implies their status. Faithful implies their stance. See, saints is the term for the people of God. They have been set apart from the world and they have been set apart for God. That if you belong to Jesus, you are a saint. But make no mistake, we are not saints because we are better than others. We are not saints because we are morally superior. We are not saints because we're culturally relevant. We are not saints because we were raised within the culture of the church. We are saints because Christ has made us His He has claimed us as His. He has made us His through His death on the cross on our behalf of our and for our sin. That is what makes us saints. As Paul refers to them as faithful, what he is talking about here is their commitment. They're being steadfast under pressure. This letter is written to the Colossians so that they would remain faithful. It is not this call to be faithful. He actually doesn't grill them. If you read Paul's letters, particularly to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, or even to the Galatians, when you read through that, including 2 Timothy, when you read through some of these letters, Paul is not afraid of calling people out. Paul is not afraid of addressing uh, false doctrine or false teaching. Paul is not afraid of, of writing people's name who are preaching something contrary to the gospel. And when we read Colossians, he actually doesn't do that. He's not calling anybody out. He's providing them with warnings. He's providing them with warnings because of the influence that's happening around them. And so this this letter is essentially this call to remain faithful. That some of these teachings, some of this philosophy that he's talking about hasn't seeped in just yet. So he's calling them to be faithful. But why does he call them to be faithful? Because they are in Christ. Well, what is in Christ mean? We use that a lot. In church culture, we use that phrase a lot, right? She's my sister in Christ. He's my brother in Christ, right? You even see it on memes and like church culture type of humor when it comes to dating, right? And, and then they break up and then they're like, oh, that was my sister in Christ. That was my brother in Christ, like making it really awkward. Sometimes that phrase becomes really awkward. Sometimes that phrase gets thrown around for some weird excuse or for some weird reason. But truthfully, what does it mean? What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, it means that we receive the benefits of union with Christ. It means that Christ becomes everything to us. It means that our fundamental identity is in Christ. 
Being in Christ means that our lives, our ethics, our relationships are shaped by Christ. To be in Christ means to never be separated from Him. To be in Christ means to be joined to a new family. As he opens up this letter, he says, I'm writing to the, to the brothers, this men and women. I'm writing to the brothers, the saints in Colossae. He's writing to his extended family. The identity that you and I receive in Christ is what shapes and empowers our life. What we believe shapes how we live. Who God says we are determines what we do. How else do we say no to sin and ungodliness apart from being in Christ? Because it is in Christ that we can remember our identity. That the power of the gospel is not only the power of God, but the power of God residing in us through the Holy Spirit, which means we can say no to sin. We can say no to ungodliness. And when that battle happens, one of the primary ways in which we combat that is by remembering that we are in Christ. That it is not some cultural term that we, that we just throw around as much and as funny as it can be, but it is the benefits, it is everything, that Christ becomes everything to us. It is our fundamental identity. And so as Paul concludes this part of his opening, I want you to know that he's not just saying this because a lot of his greetings sound similar. He doesn't just start this way because he lacks creativity. He starts this way because the way in which he begins a lot of these letters lay the groundwork for some of the themes he's going to talk about in those letters specifically. And so as he concludes with grace and peace, it is, this reminder that to the, it is this reminder to the Colossian Christians that God's grace is being poured out for them right now. That would be an encouragement to you that even now as you sit here, God's grace is being poured out onto you. That his prayer so that they would receive the peace of God is so that they would continue to walk in the peace of God. That the fact that they know Jesus means that they are no longer at war with God they have been saved, that they have been rescued, that they have been reconciled. And so he just quickly reminds them of the grace and peace of God for them. And so now we go and turn our attention to verse 3. And so he opens by saying, we always thank God. Here's the short version of verse 3. We always thank God for That's the start of verse 3. Because though Paul has never been to Colossae or met the Colossian church, he tells them of his commitment to them through prayer. The word always here means regular, ongoing, it's rhythmic. That as Paul got word and got new, received news of the church uh, in Colossae, since then he has been praying for them. One of the other cultural uh, humors that we sometimes throw around and find ourselves less and less convicted on is the whole, I'll pray for you. Hey, this is what's going on. Yeah, bro, I'll pray for you. And you don't. Or you think about it in the moment, but we don't. We don't actually take the time to pray with one another right then and there when we say we're going to pray for one another. And what Paul is saying here is, hey, I've been praying for you since I heard the news of your faith in Christ. 
He's excited to write to the Colossians, a city he's never been in, Christians he's never met, and he is thrilled to write to them. He is, sold, he is so thrilled that he has been praying for them this entire time. And he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a punch to the culture that is surrounding the Colossians, where the influence tends to be all of these different idols and pulling the Christians in different ways. Paul punches it and says, hey, there is one God, and and this is the God that I am thankful for you. I am thankful for you because of him. The gospel produces thanksgiving. And that's what this entire section is about. The gospel produces thanksgiving. And thanksgiving is centered on the work of God around you. Not just the work of God for you. But why? Why? How is that possible? Once again, listen to Tony Morita. This is what he says about Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is one of the ways you fight discontentment and one of the ways we stay rooted in the truth. Thanksgiving is one of the ways you fight discontentment and one of the ways we stay rooted in the truth. Paul thanks God for the Colossians uh, in three areas. Their, their transformation, the impact of the gospel, and their faithfulness. We're going to talk about in that, we're going to talk about that in just a moment. And every time when you consider the writings of Paul, every time we see Paul giving thanks, it's not very often that he's giving thanks for materialistic things. Paul is thankful to God for people. And let me be clear, it is not bad to thank God for materials. I think this week we're all being very thankful, right, for electricity and power and gas and trucks are starting to come down, so food supply is starting to get restocked. Clearly, we ought to be very, very thankful for all of those things. Because I get it. I mean, as soon as, you know, you're bundled up this week trying to muscle it out in the house. It's like 60, 40 some degrees in the house. And then you hear that switch of the heater turn on on Thursday night and all y'all were praising, right? Like, yes, we should praise God for these materialistic things because heat was nice, right? However, however, the question is, or the question I have for you is, how often are you thankful to God for those around you? How thankful are you to God for those around you, for his work in them, for their salvation, for, man, their transformation. How often do we thank God for the work he's doing in people around us? A lack of assurance or a lack of contentment usually stems from a lack of thankfulness. And so in this section, Paul gives us three aspects of thanksgiving. So here's the first. The first thing Paul is thankful to God for is the Colossians' transformation through the gospel. Let's look at verses 3 once more through the beginning of verse 5. Here's what Paul says. We always thank God, uh, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Here it is. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because the hope laid up for you in heaven. 
Paul lays out a beautiful formula, so if you're taking notes, here we go. I would encourage you to underline where he says, we have heard of your faith in Christ. Then again, of the love that you have for all, that would, that would be the word, all the saints. And then finally, because of the hope laid up in heaven, you can underline that whole thing. Paul is thankful for their transformation through the gospel. And we're going to look at those three things. We're going to look at faith, we're going to look at love, and we're going to look at hope. Paul is thankful for their transformation through the gospel. So when he says, I am thankful to God for you because of your faith in Christ Jesus, he's specifically talking about their salvation. He's not talking about a general faith. That is also another phrase that we throw around. I shared my faith. That's a person of faith. They're a person of good faith. What does that mean? Paul does not leave it uh, to, to, for us to guess. Paul tells them exactly what he is thankful for, and he is thankful for their salvation. He is specific to what Christ has done for them. He is thankful to Christ because he has saved them. He is thankful because He has forgiven them of their sins, that He has reconciled them to the Father, that they are faithful in Christ, and that they are devoted to Christ. Paul doesn't leave these general cultural uh, humor terms that we might use today. He is specific regarding why he is thankful to God for the Colossians. He adds that he is thankful to God for the Colossians because of their love for all the saints. So it is not only that God has saved them through his gospel, but through that same gospel that he is sanctifying them, that he is doing a work in them, and by his grace they are responding to that work. And how do we see them responding to that work? By having a love for all the saints not just the ones they tolerate, not just the ones that are in their circle, not just the ones that they like. Again and again, what we're going to see is that the Colossians not only receive the gospel of Christ, but they apply the gospel of Christ in their lives. And that's fruit of sanctification, that is fruit of transformation, that not only has God saved them and, and created their heart to be new, but it has poured out in their lives among one another. That the love of God has not just transformed them because it's so wonderful that they understand it, therefore they apply it themselves. And he thanks God for, for their hope and eternal security. See, the certainty of heaven is what gives them the ability to endure the present. The reality of heaven for the Colossians is what fuels their faith in Christ and for their love for one another. And so when we look at these three uh, let's say, metrics of salvation. Right? We, see, we see that they've been saved, that they're being transformed, and that their hope rests in eternal security. All of this is made possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And that's what Paul is driving. The Colossians are a new people. They are redeemed, that they have been claimed by Christ and transformed through his gospel. Church, do you see this in one another? And are you thankful to God because of his word and work in your brothers and sisters? Does your prayer life ever sound like, God, I am thankful for blank because you have saved them, you have called them to yourself, you have redeemed them. I am thankful uh, to you because of or for blank because of the gifts that you've given them in hospitality and teaching or in encouragement. We are a selfish people. God, thank you for the morning. I need this because I'm struggling here and I need you to really come through with it. And when it doesn't work, we become discontent. What does your prayer life look like when it comes specifically to thanksgiving? Specifically to thanksgiving. So that's the first aspect, right? That, that Paul is thankful to God for the Colossians' transformation through the gospel. Next, in, in the second half of verse 5 through verse 6, Paul shifts to being thankful to God for the kind of impact that the gospel has made and is making in the lives of the Colossians. So the second half of verse 5, Paul says, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, <clears throat> as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. And it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of truth. So I want to I wanna focus in this area, I want to focus on two things that Paul mentions that I think are incredibly important. The first one is <clears throat> bearing fruit and increasing. See, Paul is thankful to God because the impact of the gospel is that it is bearing fruit meaning that people are coming to know Jesus, that the gospel is being spread, that a harvest is being produced time and time and again because of the gospel. Remember, Colossae is that city that was uh, not influential, that was insignificant, that was forgotten, that was just left to the side, and all of these other cities are getting massive attention because of their massive and tremendous amounts of influences. The Austins, the Dallases, the, the, the Houstons, all of these cities were receiving letters from the apostles, and then here we have Colossae. Not many people traveled to it, and if they did, they didn't want to. It was the last place that you would think the gospel would be spread to. And here we have this church that is filled with Christians who, are, who have been saved by Christ and who are learning about the sufficiency of Christ. And Paul is thankful to God because the gospel is bearing fruit, particularly in places and in people that you would not necessarily consider. And so when he uses the phrase bearing fruit and increasing, this is the language of the Old Testament in Genesis where the first Adam was supposed to fill the earth with offspring. Here the second Adam is filling the earth with sons and daughters of God. If you didn't know, the second Adam is Christ. But the gospel is bearing fruit. And so as we hear these words from God through Paul to us, man, he is bearing fruit in McAllen. 
that there are churches, but in particular this little church where the gospel is flourishing and people are trying to remain faithful to the gospel, you would not think, and how many times have you heard, oh man, so-and-so came uh, to, to, to saving faith in Christ Jesus. They were the last person that I thought would come to know Jesus. And that is the whole point of the gospel, that it bears fruit and it increases. That if God can save the Colossians, he could save us. That if he can sustain them, he can sustain us. And he is so motivated and thrilled and excited at the fact that the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing that he uses this little term. It's in verse 6. In verse 6 he says, as it also does among you since the day you heard it. He's talking specifically about the gospel. So he's saying, you have heard the gospel through faithful teaching and preaching. And he goes on to say, and understood the grace of God in truth. So what kind of an impact did the gospel make on the Colossians? Not only did they receive the gospel, they understood the gospel. Listen, to be changed by the gospel means we must understand the gospel. It means we need to have clarity on what the gospel is. I was meeting with uh, a a few people yesterday, and this is something that we landed on for a great deal of our time, and it was the clarity of the gospel. And while I'll unpack that a little bit more, you and I need to know, we need to recognize that when we have a clear understanding of what the gospel is, we protect the sufficiency of Christ for us. Because when we have an immature or we lack understanding of what the gospel is, we are susceptible to compromise the gospel in our lives. And so the gospel is that the Father sent His Son into human history as the man Jesus Christ to live in our stead, die in our place for our sins, on our behalf, and then freely offers us this grace of salvation and redemption that none of us can earn. Transforming our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. We must have and we must have an embrace on the clarity of the gospel. It protects the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ in our lives. That doesn't mean that if you have a, like, a misunderstanding of the gospel, you must not be a Christian. No, it might just mean you're a Christian who's not being discipled. Or maybe you're a Christian who wants to be the lone ranger. And so the reason we press community here isn't to satisfy some quota, but it is so that we would disciple one another with the gospel. A few weeks ago, we we finished a series on discipleship, and I think it was the second or the third week in that series, and the question that was presented was, how do we as Christians help to mature one another? And the answer was through the proclamation of the gospel to one another over and over and over and over again. That is how we help to mature one another. We must have a clear understanding of the gospel so that it would protect the sufficiency of Christ. And if we're going to be changed by it, we must understand it. Paul is thankful to God for the impact of the gospel on the Colossians. 
And so we come to the final aspect of Thanksgiving. This is verses 7 and 8. And so here's the question. How was the impact of the gospel possible? How did they not only receive the gospel, but understand it? How did they receive, understand, and then begin to apply it? And Paul tells us that it was through faithful teaching. Paul is thankful to God for faithful teaching of the gospel. Specifically through Epaphras. In verse 7, he says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. If you go back to Acts 19, there is this time where Paul is in the city of Ephesus, right? He's in the motherland. He's in Austin, right? So he's in, in the city of Ephesus, and he preaches in the synagogue every day for three months. Some historians and scholars believe that Epaphras was among the people in the crowd at the synagogue and that he came to faith in Christ Jesus through the preaching of the Apostle Paul in Ephesus. So I want you to think about that. So Epaphras hears, he hears the gospel, he receives the gospel, is saved and changed by the gospel, and we later learn in chapter 4 that Epaphras is a native citizen to Colossae. So he becomes a Christian, he goes back to Colossae and plants this little church, and he begins to preach and teach the gospel, and people start getting saved, and people start surrendering to the lordship of Jesus slowly but surely, and he's preaching on the supremacy and the the sufficiency of Christ from the scriptures. He plants this small gospel-centered church, and here's what Paul is telling them. I am so thankful to God for you because of Epaphras' teaching. That He's been so faithful to you in preaching the gospel to you. Welcome. Uh, and so when you, consider, when you consider, for instance, us getting together when we hang out or in community, and sometimes it feels so mundane, proclaiming the gospel to one another over and over and over again, then I want you to know that you are making a significant impact in one another's lives when you do that. You are making a significant impact when you proclaim the gospel to one another. And sometimes it doesn't feel like you're doing anything. Sometimes it feels like it's just not working. Yet here we have the Apostle Paul saying, I'm thankful because you have not only heard the gospel, you have not only received it and understood it, you have been receiving it through faithful teaching. And that's what Paul is thankful for regarding the faithfulness. He also concludes by encouraging them and maybe even encouraging Epaphras by saying, you've received the gospel and you're applying it. Well, how are they applying it? Verse 8, he goes on to say, so Epaphras has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Epaphras goes to Paul, who's in a Roman prison, and he's not telling them, this is what I'm doing. These are the programs I'm listing out. These are the theology classes that are happening. What he goes on to say is, let me tell you about the people in my church. Let me tell you about the people in my church. Let me tell you how they love one another in the Spirit. Let me tell you how the love of God for them in Christ has changed them. 
what Epaphras is telling Paul is, hey, the gospel is bearing fruit in the people of my church. Paul thanks God for the faithfulness of the gospel taught through Epaphras, a faithful preacher, and their application of the gospel in their lives. And so that leads us with this conclusion, these final thoughts. And the question I have is, well, then how do we change? Because I know that's one of the questions you have. How do we change? Paul is thankful to God because of the work happening around him, not just for him. So how do we get there? How does the gospel impact and create this kind of change in us? How does this concept of sanctification work? When we see the thanksgiving that Paul has to God for the Colossians, how do we get there? And so in his book, How Does Sanctification Work? David Paulson lays out five things for change. And so I'm going to walk through them briefly, but these five areas of change are present in these eight verses and throughout the letter to the Colossians. And so here's the first one. God changes you. It's the first one because that is the most fundamental. God changes you. And this is exactly what Paul is thanking God for in the Colossians. He's thanking him for their salvation. He writes of their love for all of the saints. He's excited to hear that they have this hope in eternal security, that their minds are not here on earth, though they are present, but their eyes are fixed upon heavenly certainty. That's the first one. God changes you. That is the gospel. Man, that God saves us by the power of His Holy Spirit. He regenerates our hearts. He brings us from, from spiritual death to spiritual life. The first thing is that God changes you. The second one is the truth changes you. The truth changes you. And this is what Paul is encouraging the Colossians in. He talks about their faith, but he also talks about their love for one another. He talks about how they are applying the gospel to their lives. He concludes this section by saying, your pastor is, keeps telling me about the love you walk in by the Spirit. Well, how else do they get there? They are responding to the truth of God as they read and understand the truth of God. Over and over again, we often talk about how much we need to be in our Bibles. And I think the concern, one of the concerns that I have is that oftentimes we're reading our Bibles just to walk away with something because we want to rub this lamp that we call God as our genie and we want him to hook us up with something. Or we only want the Christian life to be experiential or we only want it to be emotionally driven. But the truth is that although there are some emotional parts of the Christian life and there are it is an experience it is also intellectual it is also commitment it is also devotion directly to god's word that we must find ourselves in god's word because it is the truth of god that changes us that is why the colossians are applying it again they didn't just hear the gospel they received it and they are applying it in their daily lives 
The third change is that suffering and struggle changes you. That when we experience suffering and struggle, when we experience the reality of suffering and struggle, it is a time for us to run toward Christ, not away. And this is something that Paul will eventually encourage the Colossians on. Suffering and struggle changes you. And next is that wise people change you. Paul is excited and thankful to God for the work uh, in the Colossians, but he's also saying, man, a lot of this is because you've been taught and influenced by Epaphras. And I am so thankful to him. I think this one is going to be a hard one. It can be because some Christians, this may be you, love being lone rangers. You love being lone rangers and there's no wise people around you. And when there are no wise people around you, you get arrogant and you make really dumb decisions. So get wise people around you. Because they will counsel you. They will encourage you. They will exhort you. They will rebuke you. And all of that is necessary. How does sanctification work? One of those ways is that we have wise people around us. And finally, you make changes. You make changes. You making changes is part of the necessary work of sanctification. I was meeting uh, with uh, a friend yesterday. And we were talking about just some of the things that he had been struggling with and he was putting a lot of stuff on the table. And at the end of our conversation, he just goes on to say, and I loved it because he's being transparent, he goes on to say, I am just passive. That was a very profound statement because there's no excuse around that. He says, I am passive. And right before he made that comment, he, used, he said this phrase. I asked him, man, what keeps you from making changes? What keeps you from being proactive in making changes? And he says, I think I need to allow, um, uh, I think I need to allow myself to be sanctified. And so in that moment, I told him, you are being sanctified. Whether you are responding to the Spirit's conviction is something else. And I mentioned this a while ago. I mentioned, I think, last week. Oftentimes, as Christians, when it comes to the work of sanctification, we think that God does and changes us through osmosis. Like, He saves us, and then we're just waiting, and God's going to do these things. And if He doesn't do these things, then He must be okay with the way I'm doing things. Or if He doesn't do these things, it's because I'm not there in my Christian life yet. No, bro. Like, change. You need to make some changes. You need to be proactive about making changes. You need to be proactive about some conversations that you need to have. Make no mistake, everything here is true that God changes you, the truth of God changes you, suffering and struggle changes you, wise people influence and change you, and you make changes. So stop being a passive Christian. Stop using Christianese to hide behind what is just laziness. Stop using really good and intellectual or intelligent and elaborate language to justify your sin. Stop being passive and make changes. God is, or Paul is thankful to God because of the work happening around him, not just for him. 
So as we conclude, Christian, here's what I have for you. We have much to be, faith, uh, to be thankful for, especially this week. Everybody be like, yes, but listen to me. The saints have been around you every Sunday and during the week. Have you been thankful to God for them? It's a really quick way to be thankful to God when that, that heater turns on. And that was, a wonderful, that was a wonderful moment. And are you thankful to God for the saints that are around you? What keeps you from loving one another? Do you need to forgive someone? Do you need to ask for forgiveness? Don't be passive about change. Is there more complaint than confession in you? Listen, I'm, I am thankful to God for you, Storehouse, because of your faithfulness to the gospel. And like the Colossians, I want us to strive to remain faithful. I think one of the ways in which we're going to strive to remain faithful is by being thankful to God for one another and his work in one another. So let it begin today. And if you don't know Christ, if you don't know Jesus, whether you're here or you're watching online, I'm thankful to God for you being here. However, you do not have eternal hope. So faith is dead and love is incomplete. Yet, the message of the gospel is that Christ is ready to pardon any sinner who turns to him in faith and repentance. That he will bring you from spiritual death to spiritual life and ignite your heart to love like he does and provide you with a hope that is never-ending. Church, gospel-centered thanksgiving is centered on the work of God around us not just the work of God for us. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. You are so good, so much so that you sent your son to enter into human history as the man Jesus Christ. To live in our stead, to die in our place, so that we might be reconciled by your grace through him and your Holy Spirit to you. We are thankful for you because of Jesus. And so, Father, may that shape the entirety of our lives as we worship and walk out of here into our daily life. And Father, we confess that our hearts are not only prone to wandering, but we are professional wanderers. Because that's what we desire. That's exactly what we desire sometimes. And Father, we confess that rather than thankfulness, we complain and excuse our sin. We become passive. And at times, the reality is that we simply do not want to change. Our sin is more of a war story 
than an offense toward you. Father, would you have mercy on us this morning? And may we praise you with thankfulness in our hearts and worship in our mouths and transformation in our walk. God, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable to you this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.